I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a rendition of a talk I gave at NGBK Berlin in 2016 as part of an exhibition called Father Figures Are Hard to Find. Cutting up the image of the Father, reconstructing the Third. The role of the Father is controversial and especially problematic in the era of patriarchy and capitalism. To explore this from a psychoanalytic perspective, we'll go back to the early theories of Freud and through a gross history of the development of the theories having to do with the father, whom I prefer to call the third. I feel this is a more accurate description of this position, especially today. But first, let's begin with the development of the subject, the individual. The identity ego is an illusion. The self is experienced as fragmented and a sense of cohesive identity is formed through fantasy. Some schools of psychoanalysis posit that we gain our sense of identity through the introjection of an identification with the mother that we then continue to modify via a series of identifications with other figures with whom we come into contact throughout our lives. In this way, we may be seen as constantly adding to and reworking our identity ego throughout our lifespan. Jacques Lacan explores the formation of identity via his theory of the mirror stage. During this time, aged 6 to 18 months, the child experiences herself and body as fragmented. But when she sees herself in the mirror, the mirror image appears to be whole. As the child's experience of her own body self is fragmented, there seems to be a disconnect between her experience and herself and the image in the mirror. This experience of disconnection continues throughout life. Through a similar process of identification, This time, identification with her own mirror image, the child is able to internalize the cohesive sense of self that she imagines the mirror self-image to have. This thusly forms the ego identity. We identify with what we imagine ourselves to perceive The ego identity is therefore an identification with a fantasy. At the moment the child recognizes herself in the mirror image, she turns to the mother 
sitting beside her to search for a signal that her perception is accurate. That indeed, this whole person she sees in the mirror is in fact a reflection of herself. Once the mother provides affirmation of this, the child turns her attention back to the mirror image, confirming that this perception is indeed herself, thereby reifying her own identity. The position of what would more accurately be considered to be the truth self, what Lacan calls the subject, is not equivalent to the ego but rather is situated in the gap that exists between the self and the mirror image, between consciousness and matter, the ego and the real of the body, perception and the unconscious, sexuality and death. Sigmund Freud states the ego is first and foremost a body ego. It is the product of our fantasy as we attempt to produce an experience of a cohesive body self-identification. In Beyond the Pleasure Principle, Freud likens the ego to a crust. One may think of it as a callus that is built up through the repetition of experience, or a scab that forms when the skin is cut. The ego is our symptom. It is the scaffolding. But we as subjects are not equivalent to this structure. We are situated in the gap in the space between. And our identity is malleable. If identity can be understood as identification with a fantasy of what we imagine ourselves and or our mothers to perceive us to be, which is then solidified by the repetition of similar experiences that validate this fantasy, then why couldn't we choose to adjust our experiences and those characteristics and mold our identity in a different way, in a way we choose, rather than being products of the system into which we are born? We may not be able to completely alter our conditioning as it is so fundamental and ingrained but the realization that we can consciously choose to alter ourselves, even to some extent, is powerful in and of itself. Identity is prescribed and not with us in mind. We can see the fantasy of cohesion breakdown in psychosis, for example, where the person is plagued by the experience of the fragmented body and unable to pull her consciousness out of the real of the body and into the realm of the imaginary, which makes the experience of living more tolerable via fantasy. The term imaginary in this sense is derived from the word 
image and refers to the image in the mirror. The realm of the mirror is the imaginary register in Lacanian psychoanalysis. Another realm in which we gain a glimpse of our real fragmented state is in our dream lives. Here we often experience a state of anxiety accompanied by pieces of a puzzle which we later string together upon retelling in an attempt to form a cohesive narrative. We actually perform a similar action in our waking lives as well, as our waking lives are also a series of disjointed events that we string together via fantasy to create an experience of a cohesive narrative that we then relate to ourselves and to others. Thereby, as is well known in psychoanalysis, we can go back and alter our perception and understanding of events in our lives to change and recreate our personal narrative. We can rewrite our own story. It is also useful to view waking and dream states not as a binary of awake-asleep, but rather a continuum of wakefulness-sleep, conscious-unconscious. In this way, we recognize that when we are asleep, we oftentimes have one eye open and are able to perceive that which is happening in our environment. Often our dreams are a way to encourage ourselves to remain asleep. What we call our psychic sensor decides not only what will be allowed from the unconscious into consciousness, however altered it is in representation to veil its true meaning, but also masks stimuli from the environment, frequently incorporating it into the dream work. For example, when an alarm cock becomes a fire alarm in our dream and we suddenly need to evacuate the building. Similarly, when we are wide awake, our unconscious mind is still active and is more or less present in daydreams, fantasies, imagination, etc. This concept of the ratio or continuum in a state of flux can be applied not only to dream-wake states and conscious-unconscious, but also to aspects of identity such as gender and sexuality. We are born into a story, an already existing narrative. Even before we are born, our parents, family, and society have ideas of who we will be, what we will do, how we will succeed, and what trials we may face, all before we have even left our mother's body. We are subjugated in utero. It is mapped out for us, structured, put into play, and is largely based on gender. The first question asked of us is, is it a boy or a girl? This leaves no room for ambiguity. 
Boys have penises, girls do not. We are all well aware of the atrocities that have taken place in the early assignment of gender to children born intersex and what catastrophic repercussions this often has. Yet, rather than exalt the androgyne, as has been done in times past, we continue to force people into categories we've deemed socially acceptable. The system is built on dichotomy, male-female, active-passive, one-zero, master-slave. But what happens when we begin to break down this system, push boundaries, surpass borderlines, and transgress limits? As we know, gender and sexuality are not determined by biology. Judith Butler revolutionized the academic discourse surrounding gender and gender identity in 1990 with her book, Gender Trouble, in which she introduces the idea of gender as performative. Taking this a step further, not only could gender be considered a performance, but our entire identity could be seen in this way. So, if gender and overall identity is a performance, or at least has a heavy performative aspect, it should be essentially malleable, not only varying from person to person, but evolving over an individual's lifespan, from situation to situation, or even from day to day, if one so desires. Freud stated our ego is first and foremost a body ego. We learn about ourselves and the world via our bodies, especially through our orifices, as these are the spaces where we exchange inside and out, ingest and discharge, are penetrated and expel. These are the holes openings, gaps, but also limits, boundaries, and surfaces. The rim of the mouth, anus, urethra, vagina, nostrils, eyes, and ears. What is the difference between those that seal versus those that remain open, or rather, unable to close. Even the pores of the skin are countless numbers of orifices, tiny mouths opening and closing more quickly or slowly depending on our state, mood, level of stimulation or relaxation. Around the turn of the 20th century, Freud released his seminal work three essays on the theory of sexuality, in which he introduced his theory of childhood sexuality, outlining the oral, anal, and genital stages for the first time, claiming we are all born bisexual and intrinsically polymorphously perverse. 
the expert on sexuality and perversion at the time, was Richard Kraft Ebbing, who believed, as did society at large, that sex is solely for procreation and any sexual act following outside of the reproductive intention was considered to be perverse. Freud actually agreed with this definition of perversion, but stated that perversion is our natural inclination and is the norm, that it even precedes the norm. Humans are sexual beings. Children are sexual beings. We are all perverse, and the entire body is sexual, not just the genitals and erogenous zones. Any part of the body can become eroticized, as can the gaze, smell, or voice. The drive, as Freud posits it, lies somewhere between the body and the mind, on the border. Drives are always partial. There is a difference between sexual object and sexual aim. The drive never works on the whole body or whole subject and therefore is always focused on fragments or individual activities together with a quality of being active or passive. A catalog of drives is impossible because everyone develops their own variations. Ultimately, every human being could be described as perverse. Perverse, in Freud's original psychoanalytic definition, is sexual activity without the aim of reproduction. We all have varying combinations of partial drives. Why don't we remain, quote-unquote, perverse? Because we all go through some sort of process of normalization via socialization in childhood. This normalization process is what is known as the Oedipal Complex. The Oedipal Complex is the process through which everyone works in order to move from two to three positions. This process enables one to break away from a mirror relationship with one other person and turn towards a third. In assuming this stance, one may slide metonymically into the position of the other, and again into the position of the third, thereby assuming each and all positions. A characteristic of human desire is that it can never be wholly fulfilled and therefore leads to constant momentum or movement. Our desire always goes through that of another, starting with that of our parents and finishing with that of the latest object of our love. To follow one's own desire is an impossible task. Every desire relates to someone else. It is only when you don't care that you don't desire. My desire always goes through the desire of another person. Therefore, the field of desire becomes the ultimate field of identification. 
I identify with the desire I perceive in the other person in order to be desired by her. Desire works both ways and can therefore result in identification both ways. I identify with her desire and therefore abandon a previous desire that is a prior identification. And then she identifies with my desire and so on and so forth. The structure of our psyche is such that my desire will always be indebted to that of another. The goal of desire is to go on desiring. In the sexual relation, no matter if it is overtly sadomasochistic or not, there is always an inevitable element of dominance and submission. Even in the sexual relation with oneself, in masturbation, we are the one doing the beating as well as the one being beaten. We are performing the act on ourselves and therefore occupy both positions, the dominant and the submissive. We gain pleasure engaging in this activity, which is nonetheless an aggressive action. Furthermore, we may take a third position as well, the position of the observer, thereby witnessing the act being done by ourselves to ourselves. So no matter if an action is autoerotic, homosexual, heterosexual, trans, queer, top, bottom, SM, dominant, submissive, poly, oral, anal, vaginal, and or anything in between, no matter in which position we might be, we may concurrently slide into the stance of the others as well, and therefore occupy both and all positions at once. We are voyeur and exhibitionist. We are being seen while concurrently enacting and observing the scene, exposing ourselves as we bear witness to the exposure. The position of the third allows for this metonymy. Otherwise, the pair may be trapped in a mirror relation. The most painful form of relation is this imaginary dual relation, which Paul Verhage has so eloquently described in his book, Love in a Time of Loneliness. The forced character can be summarized as this. I insist that I and I alone can fulfill the other person's needs, and I demand that the other person fulfill all of my needs and only mine. The basic form of this is the child who wants to be everything for the mother and to be the only one, as well as demanding the same of her. This is a mirror love in which the other person must be the same as the self and where no shortcomings are allowed. The oppressive nature of this relation 
becomes manifest when the child who tries to do everything for her mother later becomes the partner who is unsure, always asking, what do you think? Is there something wrong? Are you angry? In this form, the desire of the one person has to be exactly the same as the other, for any difference is a threat that has to be extinguished. The demand for exclusive attention will be uncommonly great here. Any third person becomes a threat and jealousy is inevitable. Endless competition between being and having. The imaginary dual relationship is based on the conviction that it is possible to give, find, have, it. However, in practice, there is often a swing to the other extreme and it turns into misery and torture, feeling that nothing is possible and there is no point in anything as everything leads to the same thing. This reaction remains within the dual imaginary relation, though it is now tinged with bitterness and disappointment instead of hope and expectation. In contrast to this, there is the triangular relationship or triangular love. While the previous form binds two figures within a mirror relationship, triangular relations consist of the self, the other, and the lack as such, which cannot be removed. The lack is introduced by the third through the cut of language, which provides the space or gap between the two. This allows the other person to actually be different. Eventually, it makes a relationship based on difference possible. This is the symbolic triangular love based on longing and desire, and therefore opens up the possibility for creation. The impossibility of fulfilling this longing means that any mirror relationship is doomed to fail, for it is never possible to give what another lacks. However, this does not mean it is impossible to give and receive. Triangular love allows for a meeting, a coming together that is possible without being forced. It may happen or it may not. Indeed, you really have to love a person to leave them alone. Leaving a person alone without immediately paralyzing their desires and longings with your own contributions and solutions. This love begins in the same place, that of the relation between mother and child and the interaction of giving and taking between them. In triangular relations, something is received that cannot be given, and one gives something that one does not have. This is where Lacan's saying that love is giving what one does not have comes from. In all of these exchanges, there is a dimension of pretense rather than deceit. Giving something that one does not have presupposes that it is possible to get something that is not there. 
This is where creation comes in. Creation does not have to be intentional and intellectually thought out. In coming from a place of love and desire, one can create the unexpected. Let's look at the primary relationship between mother and child as it is found in the 20th century manifestation, particularly within the nuclear family. There are three general characteristics of this relationship. First, this form of love is total and exclusive. Second, from the very beginning, it will inevitably fail to survive and leaves a feeling of loss which gives rise to desire. Third, it is characterized by power. The first takes the form of, my mother is everything to me and only to me, and any third figure is automatically a threat. This demand for the exclusion of everybody else usually comes from the child, but can also come from the mother. And we see this particularly when there is a rival in the form of a sibling. In its original form, this all-encompassing relationship is doomed to disappear, along with its exclusivity, and we are left with a fundamental sense of something lacking, along with an insatiable desire. It is commonly thought that in this, the child loses its mother. She then goes in search of the original mother so that every subsequent partner is compared to this original partner who satisfied every desire. But what the child loses is not the mother, but the relationship with the mother as a unit. That is the condition of pre-verbal symbiosis, which in itself may be a fantasy. The mother always fails, so this relationship of symbiosis was only with the part of the mother who met the drive. So even the mother, the original love object, is not good enough either. The child longs for the pre-verbal unity that was broken at the time of birth, a break which is repeated and consolidated in and by language. But even then, children have their own unique immune systems, even in utero. The mother-child unit is definitively lost, and this loss is consolidated when language enters in. That is when the real loss or separation occurs. With the entry of the third, the position of the father, language, the symbolic. Before language, there is immediacy without mediation and the child's needs operate automatically. Afterwards, the cut of language enters, the separation by the third, there is a gap that can never be bridged. Enter self-reflection and distance. The original real division of birth is symbolically consolidated within the Oedipal structure. This is where identity comes in. Identity isn't 
inherent. It is a construct that enters in through language. Every person in the family system acquires a certain identity with regard to their position and relation to the others. And with relation comes rules. You are the mother of, daughter of, sister of, father of, and so on. Everyone is assigned their rightful place through language. At this point, we become irreversibly human, leaving nature behind. From this point, desire is put into play, ever shifting and never really satisfied. What you truly desire is the sense of unity that you may have never really had, but has been lost forever. The enjoyment of the fantasy of totality. This brings us to the third characteristic of that first love relationship, that of power. The original relationship is an omnipotent one. Each half of the unit is effectively everything to the other. When the unity is broken, this all-powerful attribute changes into power, which is accompanied by a transition from the verb to be to the verb to have. While the two halves of the relationship initially complete each other within a unit, after the division, this changes into a pattern of give and take, and therefore the possibility of refusal to give or take. The original omnipotence evokes fear. After the mother's original omnipotence is destroyed, a sense of shortcoming is established. The mother is not always there, and when she is present, she is not there in the same way she was before the division. She is never enough. She is not what the child expects or had hoped for. The discovery of the mother's shortcomings reflects the child's discovery of her own failings and her own shortcomings. Whatever the child does, no matter how she tries her best, she will never be able to meet the mother's desires perfectly, and she will also never again experience the sense of completeness that once was there. Now there is a search for something beyond, outside the original dual relationship, something that can complete this lack, something or someone who can produce a solution for this loss. In the classical Freudian view, this is the moment where the father or third appears as the person on whom the mother's desire is focused beyond the child. This is where the idea that the father has the phallus comes from. The father or third has what the others lack. But what's interesting is when one realizes that the position of the third and the position of the symbolic or introduction of language is the same. Then one sees that the position that actually introduces the lack is seen not to have it. 
When the child turns to the father or the third, she inevitably becomes disillusioned there too. The father is not the hero of her dreams who will invent the perfect solution for this fundamental problem. In traditional Freudian theory, the father is assigned the role of the divisive authoritarian. The evolution of the role of the father or third in Freud's theory moves from his case study of little Hans, analysis of a phobia in a five-year-old boy in 1909, through Totem and Taboo, 1913, to Moses and Monotheism, which was written at the end of Freud's life and published posthumously. Through this, we see the shifts in Freud's position on the subject. In the case study of little Hans, Freud describes the child's fear of castration as stemming from a relation with a powerful, domineering, and avenging father. However, contrary to Freud's argument, the case material he presents makes clear that the mother is the one threatening castration, and quite overtly, while the father is dominated by her. Freud later accounts for this via the myth of the murder of the primal father, which he outlines in his 1913 book, Totem and Taboo. Freud delineates a mythology regarding the original installment of the paternal function, or the function of the third, as we have called it, what Lacan calls the symbolic register. In this, there is a primal father who possesses all of the women and dominates all of the young men. These young men are also his sons. Eventually, the sons tire of the father's reign and band together to overthrow and kill him, thereby securing the women for themselves. This murder is followed by an acute sense of guilt. This guilt leads to the foundation of society via the implementation of the prohibitions on killing and incests. Thereby, according to Freud, the murder of the primal father is the foundation of civilization, as we know it. While Totem and Taboo only really concerned the relationship between the father and his sons, in Moses and Monotheism, Freud more clearly delineates the relationship between patriarchy and matriarchy. In this case, the murder of the primal father leads to a matriarchal structure taking hold, wherein we see polytheism, paganism, and mother goddesses flourishing, until, unfortunately, they are eventually subsumed and overtaken by another patriarchal structure, this time in the form of monotheism. This time, it is the son who reinstates the father, but rather than doing so out of guilt and fear of the father, it is out of a need for the father to be a limit in relation to the mother in the face of a threat of being overwhelmed by the matriarch. The father figure is installed to keep the mother at bay. This highlights the need for a break, a cut, a space 
from the mother, which language also provides. Language separates and distances. Lacan's reinterpretation of Freud identifies the father or third with language. In nature, there are no fathers. In culture, names are given in order to control, to express the way in which kinship relations are structured. This relationship structure is patriarchal, not necessarily meaning that it concerns the idea of the Western nuclear family and the position of the father in terms of that, but more so in that the relationship structure is set in place with the introduction of the father or the third. Language. It entails the symbolic recognition of relationships beyond the natural ties of the mother and child. The emphasis is entirely on this aspect of recognition. Even in those societies where the term fatherhood is used in the narrow patriarchal sense of the word, biological fatherhood is never sufficient in itself. The third has to acknowledge one's position. This recognition can come from the individual, the family, society, but the imperative is that there is this recognition. Something or someone must provide this recognition. In being given a name, the child is referred to the third structure, entering the symbolic of language and in this way leaves the original dual bond. Rereading the Oedipal structure in this way is very far from the traditional interpretation of a boy in love with his mother and afraid of his father, or of a girl in love with her father, etc. Rereading it in this way makes it possible to understand the current evolution taking place in society. No matter how kinship has been structured in various societies throughout the ages, there always seems to be a prohibition of incest. This is a prohibition of the symbolic bond between mother and child. What every child wants is this pregenital natural unity with the first love object. What every culture actually is prohibiting is being enclosed with this first other in symbiosis. One has to separate from the mother to acquire subjectivity of one's own. It is a misunderstanding to think that this phenomena is restricted to the mother-child relationship. Potentially, every love relationship contains this danger in which the so-called stronger personality com can completely swallow up the weaker one. Historically, this can be seen as a woman being absorbed by the man. We must learn, lose our first love so that we can do everything in our power to regain it, albeit elsewhere, with a substitute. Culture develops in this movement and can be said to be inherent in this movement. Language introduces culture and separates us from nature.
Masturbation is also thrown out with the prohibition on incest, as it is autoerotic and therefore doesn't require anyone else. It is an act which is not fully outside of the original symbiosis. Culture insists on a relation to the other. Sex can only be enjoyed away from the mother. The father or the third is a second choice, and any subsequent partner is at least a third choice. Historically, the function of separation has become increasingly ascribed to a single figure, that of the father, third, and increasingly viewed as taking place in relation to another figure, the mother. Yet, as an actual person, the individual father or third can only exercise this function and its related authority on the basis of an underlying symbolic structure. In recent history in the Western world, this has been that of the monotheistic patriarchal system of which he is the representative. Where does this relationship structure get its authority? From the group. It is the convention of the group that determines relation structures, the structures of kinship. Society dictates the form that relationships take in every culture. The rules that form the structures of relationships, the elementary structures of kinship, as it were. This classical anthropological study by Levi-Strauss highlights that these rules can vary widely from culture to culture, which in itself is proof enough that there is not only one original relationship form, just as there never has been one and only one original language. These two facts really concern the same thing. The structures of relationships are built upon names. This can be extended even further. The explanation for the existence of a certain structure of relationship should not be sought in a better correspondence with the natural aspects of humans, just as the arguments for a particular word should not be sought for in a better correspondence with the thing it signifies. There is no basic model. Each relational structure takes the place of an original relationship that never existed. With the establishment of patriarchy came the delineation of gender. What makes a man and what makes a woman? The patriarchy establishes an entire system of culture created to perpetuate itself. It continually enforces and reinforces its own system, which it created. Patriarchy defined masculine characteristics in positive terms, while the feminine was negative. Patriarchy also established and enforced the binary, with everything also defined in pairs of opposites. Men are strong, women are weak men are active, women are passive, and so on. The resulting effect was male superiority and female inferiority, which was established in the original argument and is continually operated and reinforced by the system it created. The question now is what happens when such a patriarchal system is put into question, when its structure of gender 
and prescribed role patterns begins to crumble. Historically, during times of instability, when the patriarchal structure was put into question, there was merely an exchange of one primal father for another. Take down a king and replace him with another king. The system that takes down the previous system ends up being structurally the same underneath. One revolution replaces another and then becomes the ruler. In the current situation, however, hopefully, the system is being deconstructed and there is a real fight against maintaining the status quo. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a rendition of a talk originally given at NGBK Berlin in April 2016 as part of the exhibition Father Figures Are Hard to Find. The title of the talk was Cutting Up the Image of the Father, Reconstructing the Third. For more, please visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Please support the podcast at our Patreon. You can find the link below or visit www.patreon.com slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 23-C-A-R-L. Becoming formless, opening doors we didn't know existed. With the establishment of the patriarchy comes the delineation of gender. What makes a man and what makes a woman? The patriarchy establishes an entire system of culture created to perpetuate itself. It continually enforces and reinforces its own system, which it created. Patriarchy defines masculine characteristics in positive terms, while the feminine is negative. Patriarchy also establishes and enforces the binary of the opposition masculine-feminine in the unconscious.
unconscious. The subject is inserted into her sexual nature, sexuality preceding the I. Attempts to grasp onto an identity can be seen as one grappling with sexuality, with one's intrinsic sexual nature, attempting to categorize it, restrict it, contain it, and give it a limit in an effort to control it. Established in the original argument and is continually operated and reinforced by the system it created. The question now is what happens when such a patriarchal system begins to be put into question. When its structure of gender and prescribed role problems begins to crumble. Historically, during times of instability, when the patriarchal structure was put into question, there was merely an exchange of one primal father for another. Take down a king and replace him with another king. The system, formless void, in which our periodic table of elements as well as the human form was created. As humans, we are predestined to regiment. There is routine and there is deviation. If we look at the cut-up technique designed by Brian Geisen, we can see a connection between routine and the room. With a first-come, first-served policy each morning, this disrupted attachment to material possessions, personal space, privacy, separation between self and others. When that takes down the previous system ends up being structurally the same underneath. One revolution replaces another and then becomes the ruler. Such choral techniques also have a separating or discriminating effect as in the threshing an image that Plato employs in his love, warmth, exploration, creating memories in me, and so many others. I'm so honored to have met you. Your passing makes no sense. Death seldom does. Your leaving us so soon will have to be a motivation an incentive to value life even more and not waste even a moment of it. In the current situation, hopefully, the system is being deconstructed and there is a real fight against maintaining the status quo. Heart to heart and soul to soul, we can and will carry on doing what we do. Art to art, and roll to roll. We will keep your memory alive, loving you for who you were, still are, and always will be. It was definitely inspired by alchemy and the idea of the hermaphrodite. In folklore, the original human or the original virus, and also an angelic representation of humans. That image fascinated us because this was a way of being that was fruitful in every possible way. An artist's muse. The hermaphrodite is a symbol 
of creative potential. The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. It is time to thresh her, yet a little while and the time of her harvest will come. Deviation. According to Brian Geisen and William S. Burroughs, the cut-up technique is a juxtaposition of language, cutting up written text to form new text, creating third mind. Looking at deviation, we can see it is essentially a physical cut-up that can be done at will or by the unconscious mind at any moment. Chaos is third mind. Third mind is deviation. Therefore, becoming formless in the state of being through both conscious and the unconscious.